Okay, I think mm-hmm. that we are very centralized, and I don't see. Unfortunately, if we continue business the way we do, I don't. I don't see a situation in which we actually choose centralization, decentralization over centralized, um, at, both in the physical and the software aspects. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here is your host, Spencer Lowe. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Lessons in Leverage. I'm excited today to have Tom Morgan here with us. He is an AI engineer and roboticist at Boston Dynamics, living with a chronic spinal cord injury. And he uses artificial intelligence and robotics to save lives through disaster response, enhance accessibility, and support marginalized communities. I was so excited uh, when he agreed to come on the podcast because obviously one of the big themes on this podcast we like to talk about is both how do we get more out of less, you know, forms of leverage, but also how's AI going to impact us in the future? And probably very few people more qualified to think about that and to talk about that than someone who's working at Boston Dynamics. And if you don't know anything about Boston Dynamics, just imagine the little video online of the robot dog running around or the robot man doing a backflip. Have you seen any of those cutting edge videos of robotics? It's usually Boston Dynamics. Oh, um, for those of you who don't know what that is, just to give us live background. But Tom, I wanted to turn over to you and hear a little bit about your background, how you got into AI and, and why it means so much to you. Sure. Thanks for having me and, and for that great introduction. I've actually, I mean, I've been programming since I was six. Uh, my first program was on a TI-84 calculator for, if any millennials are listening, I don't know if Gen Z's even know what those are, but, um, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I started programming, <laughs> I started programming on a, on a graphing calculator. Uh, I just wanted my name to kind of bounce around the screen and, um, started wanting to make video games on them. Uh, but I eventually learned to actually, um, make it make sounds. I had a friend who was blind uh, and needed, um, to be able to use a graphing calculator so i made it make different sounds when you press certain keys um and then i kind of just found this groove of you know creating applications that help people do certain tasks that aren't exactly you know feasible um and eventually i got a little bit into um web design um uh, i did some suburb i did a little bit of robotics uh, as a kid i did do robotics in high school then I went to college and the thing is I did all of this programming and all of that stuff for fun. So I, I didn't expect anyone would ever pay me to do that. Um, so I actually didn't declare a computer science or math major until end of my junior year. Uh, I, I genuinely did not. I was like, you know, people in high school be like, yo, uh, I'd be like, check out my jailbroken phone. It can do all this cool stuff. And they'd be like, yo, here's 50 bucks. Do it on mine. And I'm like, I, I can send you the tutorial. Like it, it's a step by step, like, ah, dude, just here's 50 bucks, make it happen. And I was like, what is what? And so I was like, it just never dawned on me that this would actually turn into a career because, I, and my parents would always be like, stop doing that, do your homework. And I'm like, I know it's just more fun, but I get it. Yeah. Like I'll never get a job. I get it. And here we are, you know, I, and I, you know, <laughs> I didn't even go to like, you know, a, a crazy Ivy League college or anything. And here I am now at Boston Dynamics training people that went to MIT and Harvard. It blows my mind. Like, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly, uh, it's an incredible, like working there is an incredible privilege. Um, and it's just very exciting. 
I first started with government, um, and then I switched into a little bit of biological, um, artificial generative AI. Um, and then I, w I, I decided, you know, I would really like to see what robot, you know, what AI and robotics are going to do for the future. And I'm, I'm pretty positive about it. I think that Boston Dynamics is definitely one of the forefront, uh, in, in ro robotics. And I'm glad they are because they have a really good mission. Um, their mission is to really enrich the lives of others, uh, of human beings. They want to make sure that, um, you know, the, the correct jobs are taken. Um, and so that was a very big, um, factor in me choosing to go work for them. So it's very exciting. I get to see it. And oh, and just for the listeners, it is real. It's not CGI. I get to see them all the time walking through the office. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no. And, and even at the holiday parties, that, that's incredible. Yeah. We, we have, we had one out here, uh, at Silicon Slopes. Uh, we had uh, a conference here in Utah and they had one of the little dog units uh, going around. It was, it was a blast. That's yeah. They're, they're, they're really fun. They, I just, just, just to be aware though, they are, they can be slightly dangerous. If you get too close, you don't want to get a finger in one of those joints or anything, but they're, they're industrial grade. You got to treat them kind of more like a, like a, like a tractor or a forklift. Mm, yeah. That's a good point. You don't think about it. They look kind of fun. You're like, Oh, what a nice toy. Like, that could rip you apart. They, they do look fun. And I, and it's not like they're going to like maliciously hurt you. It's just, they're, they're designed to be robust. Well, uh, for in industrial conditions in construction. So you just kind of have to be conscientious. Like granted, they, they are yeah. programmed to kind of stop when, when it detects a human being nearby, but just to be safe, like you don't want to be like, you know, poking your fingers in and out of it. Um, I mean, it could, it, they're, the joints are very strong and they, you could lose, you could lose a digit if you're not, if you're not smart about it. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. You don't think about that, but that makes sense that if you're going to have that kind of power and hydraulics and all of that to, to that industrial grade that it, you got to be smart about that. So, so with, with, uh, with, with getting into, uh, you know, robotics and finding your way there, I, I love that story. And I love the fact that it ended up being your passion. You know, th most people think about working on like either go become an engineer, like that's the like job that I have to just do for the money or do my passion, which is maybe like art or music or sports. And it's like, you had the sweet spot of you did your passion and it ended up on the cutting edge of being really productive and really useful to society. So that's such a, a cool aspect to that, that this thing that you were doing for fun became such an important tool in your career. And so as you found your way into it, uh, what drives that? What drives the, the purpose for you? Because it's clear from your biography that this is something that you feel like has a really big purpose and mission. When you look at your work in AI, what is the responsibility and what is the goal uh, behind AI for you? So for, for, for the listeners, uh, as you mentioned before, I have a chronic spinal cord injury, which um, uh, confines me to, I wouldn't say confines me, it requires me to use a wheelchair. Um, and that has, uh, I was injured when I was about 16 years old, um, doing, you know, reckless teenage things, you know, unfortunately things happen, but here I am, and I do think that my disability has actually shaped my potential. It has really given me a different way of looking at problems. Many times I will be stuck doing something that I was very, you know, I, I knew how to do it on two feet. And suddenly, you know, like a good example in college was 
when there was, there was a really icy ramp to the laundry room and I needed to be able to bring my laundry up there, but I kept sliding down the ramp. And that's just an, that's just one of the many problems that you could normally look at as like a setback. But I actually had to kind of work through this problem. I got like a, you know, a rolling star. I got some momentum. I put my laundry bag at the top and like I, I get that on a regular basis and I choose instead of, you know, getting upset, I, I kind of like, well, this is rather unique. I, this, this would never have occurred to me as a problem if I had never been disabled. Like, this is actually kind of fascinating. Um, what, what do I know in my expertise or, you know, what I've done with computers and engineering? What kind of solution could I come up with to solve this so that I don't have to do it again or have trouble again next time? And, I think that has been an actual major driver in a lot of the solutions that I have found and a lot of the projects I have worked on. I've worked on robotics that are able to retrieve items in hard to reach places for people that have uh, vision impairments or mobility issues because th that demand was there. I had a friend who needed that. I, it was useful for me. I created a tool that was able to tell people who are deaf um, by flashing signs or describe their, um, using artificial intelligence to be able to describe the surroundings that are behind them. Or if there was a sound that was nearby that should, they should have been able to hear, but were not aware of like a fire alarm, a train, um, a honking horn or things like that. And so I have found a lot of fulfillment in being able to solve problems that are very unique and very different. And I guess sometimes they happen to be related to disability, but I find the ones that are related to disability are the most interesting because very only about 3% of the population actually lives with a disability. And so I tend to seek problems that are uncommon. So like, I know that most businesses try to solve problems that everyone has. And I think that's, I mean, that's probably the best way to, you know, make money and, you know, really um, build up a business because there's, there's a demand for it. But I, I like to challenge myself. And so I, I actively seek those very unique problems, the ones that not a lot of people are experiencing, but it makes a big effect on their life if it could be fixed. And that's, that's really what led me to robotics. And I, I didn't know if I want, I mean, I had looked at other robotics companies, like I had looked at Tesla and I'd looked at Amazon and those big incumbents, they, I just don't think that they had the right view on robotics that I wanted. That was kind of following the same, you know, passion that I had for really fixing specific situations, not the, the, the big situations. So Boston Dynamics, their, their robots, their initial application, their purpose was supposed to be disaster response. Like we send this robot in to save a life. Um, most people want a, like, you know, Tesla wants their robot to, do chores at home. I know that sounds amazing. I would love that. That would actually be incredible for someone like me with a disability. But that's that's not a that's a very common problem. And Boston Dynamics likes to solve problems like what happens if a bridge collapses and we have an expert who's like 20 years old or, or sorry, excuse me, we have an expert who has like 20 years of experience. Uh, we don't want to risk his life by sending him in there to go see the structural damage. Let's go send in this robot that can do a 3D representation he can wear an oculus, he can look around, he can do all of that. And if the bridge, if some sort of structural damage collapses on top of that robot, we didn't just lose 20 years of experience because, and we didn't lose his life. 
um, his or her life, um, which is, I, I think is very incredible. You know, that, that is a tech, I mean, that is a use of technology that, um, and robots that to me makes it, it's a very unique situation and it, it's a very, um, it, it's a very meaningful, uh, problem for me to solve because it's so unique and it, it could, um, instead of having, you know, butlers, uh, in, um, you know, I, I feel I have my own opinions about the whole having a robot at home to do your chores. How does that not look like I robot kind of thing? But, um, Boston Dynamics's goal, um, as I've heard it from one of my managers is, um, we try to, we try to solve the three D's, the, the dirty, uh, sorry, let me try that. The three D's are dirty. Uh, give me a minute. I, I do know the three D's there. It's, um, yeah, dirty, dangerous, or dull. So we try to solve the three D's, which is dirty, dangerous, or dull. We want to make sure that those are the jobs that these robots are, are taking. Because these are jobs that human beings should not be taking in the first place. We want, you know, dangerous jobs like going to a nuclear plant or a structural, you know, like a broken down bridge. We, you know, if the, doc if the job is super dirty um, or if the job is super boring, like these are jobs that people should not be doing in the first place. And that's our goal right now is to use robotics to solve and solve those problems. And I think that's really cool because everyone is trying to use technology to solve, like take jobs away from people that are like the fun jobs, the yeah. cool jobs. And yeah, I, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the coolest things about that is you talk about this idea of finding the hardest problems to solve. So solving the broadest problem with maybe the most economic return in the short term, it, you're looking at some of these problems that are really hard to solve. What I love about that is even though that might be a corner case, it might be an outlier, it might be a small percentage of the time. When you take on that problem, long term, you gain stronger insights and better technology that then can do the others, the more obvious things. If you can, if you can build a robot to do something really meaningful for this tiny corner case, it's going to be a lot easier to make that robot clean a house if you want it to. Or... You know, so it, it it's representative of a way of thinking that I think is a really high leverage way of thinking. Um, a lot of people want to take the easiest path, the shortest path, the path that just gets me the most right now. And that's not a high leverage approach because even though there might be leverage in the scale of the market, that that goes away quickly. It's not a durable, it's not a defensible, there's no competitive advantage to that. And you don't, it, you know, what you become in, in process to that is not the same as what you become if you tackle the really challenging problem, the corner case, and you get that elegant, you get that problem solved. Well, now we've on the journey become something that can do all the other stuff alone. Is that something you've seen in your work that maybe there've been some problems that you've, by, by focusing on those corner cases or the really challenging smaller, uh, scenarios that it's unlocked other broader uses that maybe you didn't expect or that just came along the way? hundred percent hundred percent i can't necessarily talk entirely about how certain problems were solved or certain features were done with robots however i it, it is definitely very common that i see at work where um so i also do something called simulation so i have to so there are some engineers that will actually program behaviors um and you know obviously the robot's got to do certain things and somebody's got to test that that robot's going to do the right thing 
So you have to, and the best and the cheapest way to do that is with a simulation. So you want to, and it's also sometimes the most effective and the fastest because you want to, you know, let's say the robot needs to be able to just walk and do rounds. Um, you create a simulated environment in which that robot is supposed to do rounds. And then you put a couple of people here and you put a couple of dogs and you put a couple of structures and you just run that, you know, that behavior and see if the robot succeeds or fails. And the thing is that really is, is, is a, is a fun for me because I try to think of the most obscure ways that this robot could be inhibited. Um, so I have a cybersecurity background. I did a lot of what's called pen testing or penetration testing. So the idea of pen testing is to literally throw the most unique, the one thing that the person who created this product did not think about that would completely break it and make it do something you don't want it to do. So like, I would throw in some strange scenario where there'd be like, you know, a little, a, a puppy that's like smaller than the, you know, the certain height of a step. And if it ends up stepping on that puppy in, in the simulation, you know, that, that we need to go back to the drawing board. I, I let, I let the engineers, other engineers know, Hey, you know, that's, that's, you know, this test failed and we don't want that scenario to happen, you know? So we need to go back to the problem and solve why did that happen? And, you know, once we, and if we can reverse engineer kind of certain, uh, some of the logic and things like that, we then end up solving, you know, the bigger problem, which is we want it to be a safe robot. Um, and I think that th that kind of approach, like you mentioned, like being able to think outside of the box, you really think about the things that people aren't, um, thinking about is, is what I really seek and has actually resulted in a lot of what I would say is, you know, my own, um, my own personal successes have been derived from what I, what's called divergent thinking. And you mentioned earlier, um, before we even started talking, cause that, um, you think that, you know, AI could, could potentially flatten this leverage of what, uh, of in many ways that, you know, in tech and technology. And I think divergent thinking is one of them because the ability to see a situation and come up with something that nobody else is thinking about, you know, that's the only way new breakthrough innovation happens. And so that's why I always gravitate towards the, the tough problem. I'm, I'm an innovator. Like I might not be that one person who comes up, at, you know, with the best business plan that racks in all the money. I, I'm an innovator. I want to come up with this technology that, you know, somebody might think, oh, I want to apply that somewhere and that's great. But I just want that technology to be a thing. And so I'm constantly thinking of divergent ideas. And that's, that's the concept of, uh, they actually tested AIs. They said that I read this study that GPT-4 apparently is, is, is capable of more, is more capable than 50% of human beings of divergent thinking. They're actually much more efficient or the, the, the model is much more efficient. So. They tested that by saying, you know, here they would give them objects and they would say, give us a, a non-common use for this object. So they would present them with a cup. And obviously a non-divergent thought is to hold a lick, hold liquid. Um, and GPT-4 was far more capable of coming up with ways to use a cup that are not normal than an average human being. Um, and that in and of itself is the concept of divergent thinking. But at this phase, I think it's actually important for the listeners to hear, you know, AI, since AI can do that, 
that means we can do that. So if we use that tool, we can start, you know, thinking about more divergent things. You can literally ask AI, what is a non-normal way to use this bottle? And then that could spur on innovation. And until AI is able to do the whole process itself, you know, that's actually not a crut. I mean, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's actually, you know, going to accelerate our productivity and our innovation. That's awesome. I, uh, I was just having a conversation recently with someone who they kind of, you, you get people who have a lot of different, um, beliefs about where I, AI will go. One of my favorite games to play is talking about AI with people and listening for the AI can't or AI won't phrases. I love to hear the stories they have about, you know, AI is great at this, this, and this, but it can't do this. Or AI is great for these things, but it won't be able to do this. And I'm an AI optimist. I tend to think that someday AI will do everything we can do and better. Uh, but uh, I'm curious for you, one of the things I heard recently, and I think is a fairly commonly held belief, is you know, AI can't be creative. It can't, uh, it's just using all the things that it's learned. You know, it, it can't come up with its n- own new idea. Humans can do that, and then we can use AI as a tool. And I would argue that we're already past that point. I think uh, there's solid evidence that AI is being creative. Um, and I can cite a lot of examples of why I think that, but I'd love to get your insights. Do you think we're already past that point? And if so, you know, that it ties into this idea of divergent thinking. If AI is better than humans at divergent thinking, are people maybe mis, uh, imagining the future or, or having a wrong hallucination about the future that is going to make them ill prepared for it? If they think that AI will never be creative or will not be able to produce new concepts or ideas. Are they setting themselves up for failure? What do you think about that? That's a, that's an incredible question. So I'm going to answer this as uh, from just as an engineer. Um, you mentioned that you're um, an AI enthusiast. Um, there are apparently two teams. There's Xers or um, existentialists. And then there are accelerators who are excited about the technology. I, I, I would like to say that I'm on both teams. Um, and in terms of creativity, thing is, Creativity is just a measure of divergent thinking. And the thing is, we don't actually, um, the, the only reason we have a definition for creativity is because of divergent thinking. So we can't, we haven't thought of all the ideas. And in data science, this is something called data augmentation. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that large language models are creative per se, uh, in perspective, in perspective to what we're capable of doing what LLMs are doing is creative because we never, we didn't think about that. That's diversion. That was, a, that's a new thought. But now that thought has been thought of, it's no longer going to be creative uh, once it catches on and enough people have seen it. What large language models are actually doing, they're not, they're not thinking, they're not actually becoming, they're not actually being creative per se, because being creative is a human thing. That's not a computer thing. A computer thing, all it's doing is augmenting data. It is saying, here is all the data that I've been trained on. And I'm just filling in this little blank right here. Like the humans haven't, you know, filled in this blank yet. I have enough data to fill it in when someone gives me a prompt. So here, here's that little bit. And to us, that's creative because no one on the planet has thought of it yet. And the first time it was ever generated was by a machine. And that model was literally just filling in. So for example, if you know, if we didn't have, if let's say our alphabet was 27 letters, but we all knew only 26 of them, 
and we train this large language model on, on 26 letters, all the model is doing is like, oh, I just discovered the 27th letter. Here it is. And now the whole world knows it. So to us, that's creative. But to that machine, it's like, or to that model, it's just like, I was just filling in the blank, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, my internet is a little, uh, or one of our internets is slow. It might be yours, but either way, uh, so I'm yeah, getting I, some of this on a delay. I'll edit this little piece yeah. out, but just, just, uh, be patient. With yeah. Um, no, it's, it's my but, internet. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, I don't I have Wi-Fi. You're saying, and, and it sounds like the distinction you're making is, um, that LLMs specifically, you don't feel are creative. Uh, you, you feel that, that you know, that's a human quality. They are, you know, and, and so I, I can totally understand that argument. Would you argue that AI is a broader concept, machine learning, um, neural networks, all of that, that, that there isn't examples of creativity in any of that yet? Is that, is that your feeling? Oh, no. I mean, definitely what, what humans would consider creative, that's, that's totally happening. Um, like they are coming up with ideas, pictures, images, even video now that we couldn't even possibly have imagined, like, or we could only have imagined. And now it's real. Like you literally just type in, you know, Barack Obama dancing in the sunset with a camel and you can get a picture of it, bam, just like that. And all of these added things to it, like, you know, we didn't give it very specific details. It, it, it just put those things in there. Um, and it, it's created this, this, you know, a, a rendition or a draft of something that then can inspire us to be even more creative. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting question. And I think it comes down to definitions because I think that, yes, I think these large language models are able to generate things that no human ever has, but it's also able to inspire us to do the same thing. Like we can, mm. we can on top of their, on top of that divergent thinking, have further divergent thinking. And I think that. To me, uh, my definition of creativity is to be divergent thinking, is to have divergent thinking and to demonstrate that into. Yeah, that's really exciting. It's kind of a virtuous like, Yeah, it's kind of a virtuous cycle of, you know, we've used divergent thinking to come up with these tools that are powering AI that then yeah. are accelerating the pace of divergent thinking and are able to contribute. And that's then inspiring us. And so there's sort of this harmonious cycle there of being able to continue to build and advance together that you're you're seeing. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's very exciting. Um and and uh so with that being said, um you know, I'm I'm curious uh as as you look at opportunities uh with AI, you know, one of the things I've said uh is that in the past is that I've got the impression or sort of my just personal belief based on, you know, just my experience, so not highly researched here, is uh, I feel like we've had this massive boom with large language models and some of the software in terms of AI and generative AI. And that, uh, one of the interesting developments of that is that I think we may be on this, uh, acceler accelerating pace of discovery and innovation where software is sort of taking the lead in AI. And I think it also scales easier. My perception is that, um, because software is obviously inexpensive, it's just processing power costs, um, that, that you can sort of scale the software side of AI faster potentially than the hardware side. And so where people maybe thought that when AI sort of came of age, it would first do really manual labor or do these other things that we thought of as the most mundane things, 
it's actually accelerating some of the more interesting knowledge-based work first, uh, which I think maybe wasn't a prediction a lot of people would have had. Um, how do you think that that's going to play out? From what you're seeing, do you agree with that? Do you think it's true that software is sort of in the lead in terms of just accessibility, scalability, and impact? And if you do or don't, I mean, depending on what you think there, how do you see that playing out moving forward where um, you know, software and hardware will become more and more involved in our lives? Yes, I, I do think right now software in terms of AI has the lead. It's, it's very interesting because the way I view this as a programmer, what LLMs have opened up is, is what I've experienced for the past 14 years, but I had to do it myself. I had to type it in my language, which, or computer language or programming language, which to me, I'm, I'm fluent in, but not everyone else is fluent in that. Now, everyone else who is fluent in spoken language now has access to everything I've had access to all along. So this AI isn't really, you know, having thoughts. It's not really doing things on your behalf quite yet. Um, you still actually have to hook things up for it to do those things on behalf. So the word I use here is automation. So when, once you learn a programming language, once you've learned how to program, once you've learned how to do a for loop and connect that to some service on the web, you can now have the power to automate some sort of behavior and just say, do this and schedule it whenever, and I'll just sit back and do nothing. And there are web apps that you can, you know, they have a UI for that. But once you learn how to program, you can create new tools, you can create new automation, you can like I noticed, like like Calendly, uh, we scheduled this through Calendly, and Calendly had these automated uh, emails sent to me that I'm I'm sure you set up through the UI. Now, that had to have been written by a programmer, both the UI and the back end. What's interesting now is that I mean, because all of that had to be done with in a programming language that had to be written manually. Now we have nat natural language and I don't think we're there quite just yet, but we're getting, we're going to get there eventually where instead of, because I actually did this the other day where there isn't, there's an open source project called auto GBT. It, it hasn't really released in a certain flavor that has like a nice little UI that says, boop, I'm good. But I just downloaded it from GitHub and I basically told it, Hey, here are my credentials to DigitalOcean and AWS. Um, I want an app that is able to take order. It's able to take food orders. It has a menu and each menu has, uh, and then the menu has food items on it and each item has a price and a name. Can you go and do this for me? I, that's all, that's all the instruction I gave it. And it went actually, it actually went out. It researched how to create what's called an API. That's just like, that's something that's the back end of a, of some, any, any web application. You've got to, it created an, it, it searched how to do that. It downloaded some software. It spun up a server instance on AWS. I, I didn't do any of this. It spun up. I just gave it the credentials. It spun up this web service. It then created endpoints. And I was, I was reviewing the, I was reviewing the endpoints. Like I didn't give it a lot of design. So like I can't really be critical of, of its design, but it did create like proper endpoints to be able to make an order to, to ask what's on the menu to see what foods are, what food is on the menu, to what is the price of a particular item. And I was kind of like, 
that's i mean th- this thing is doing my job right now like it it i granted it's not doing it the best but this is like what we're only a year in after gen- yeah, you know yeah. launch language book yeah yeah it's it's i, I wouldn't say it's terrifying but it's yeah, very interesting it's gonna be improved all the cup but so many improvements and pretty soon like i so like i had to de- so i the steps that I took, I, I had to clone the, uh, the, 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 the program. I had to type some sort of things into the command line, but eventually those things are not going to matter. Like you, somebody, somebody has taken this, this program, put it somewhere. And all you had to say is, I want an app. So like, actually, no, all you have to do is say your business logic. Like you're going to, like, we are literally like us programmers. We are literally paving our own, the demise of our own, of, of our own field. Like we are, we're the ones programming the end of our field and our industry by creating those applications. And I think it's actually kind of beautiful. Like, I think it's really cool to, because I, when I discovered programming, it made me feel like I had like, if, you know, for people, for Harry Potter fans, I've always equated programming to magic. Like if I had enough time, I could program anything to do anything I want. And pretty soon that, that, privilege and that ability will be available to anyone who knows how to speak English or any language for that matter. Um, spoken language. It, it's incredible. Um, and I, I think that that's, I mean, even though that might make, yeah. you know, it harder that for is, my industry, that I'm excited for it. Cause I feel like everybody deserves to know what that feels like. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be an exciting time and, uh, it's going to, it's going to have such wide reaching impact. Um, I'm curious, what what tool did you use? What package from GitHub did you pull? Is that like AutoGPT or one of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called AutoGPT. And I just pull it down, um, just cloned it onto my 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 computer, just gave it, just told it what my credentials were in the the command line, and it just started saving things on files. I was observing, like, I mean, granted, like this is all going to get better. Like the way it saves data is just straight up text files. Like it doesn't encode it in any like computer savvy way. Like it's. You know, there's there's some there are so many layers of improvement here, which is why I'm just like, this is literally the first draft, and it's like already able to spin up like a server with credentials. And I was like, hmm, um, like I didn't even teach it how to do that. It didn't know how to do that. It found out how to do that. Yeah, that is that is super impressive. And then it, it you know, the, a lot of people you know don't realize that for the whole period of time where this is getting better and better the skill set gets more and more valuable, not less. You know, the fear I think is, oh no, as a programmer, my skill set's going to be replaced. Sure, someday. But while it's getting better and better, the best programmers will have, will be more and more valuable because the insights of an expert to come in and know what's wrong, help prompt it on what to fix, help teach it the most scalable architectures, help it rethink, you know, some of the things that, that needed to be ironed out from the way it learned or which sources it pulled from, see any vulnerabilities, all those things that come with a lot more experience as a programmer, that's going to allow you to really wield it the right way versus someone who has no programming experience and just has plain English. They might get a product right. back and it might work, but it might have massive vulnerabilities. It might not be following certain best practices. And so um, there's going to be a period of time there until it's really rock solid um, that just makes those skills more valuable and allows those people that have those programming skills and the ability to, to understand what's going on to just accelerate the impact they can have. Um, and so that's super exciting. Yeah, I've, I've been wanting to toy with AutoGPT. I've been reading about it a little bit. And, uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear that story. Yeah, that's a, that's a, 
It's a fun one. One, I, one of the other things I wanted was, to ask about. No, go, go ahead. One of the other things I wanted to ask about was um, uh, this idea of we think about AI through a lens of it being separate. You know, it's like there's sort of the view of it like it's a tool. It's either a tool or it's like a full on being. You know, it's if it's a tool, then the human's in control and it's just doing what we say. Or if it's like a being, then oh no, it could replace us. It could kill us. And uh, those are sort of two metaphors that people use to to understand or think about AI and you can quickly see which one you know people people attach themselves to based on some of the things they believe about it and how they talk about it um and and when i think about it one of the interesting things that i look at is especially with robotics in the space that you're in there's a lot of very important and and interesting use cases about the synergy between humans and ai whether or not it's a, a being whether or not it's a tool there's there's these use cases like you know Neuralink is trying to do some interesting things there um you know i i i don't know all, everything about what boston dynamics is doing but i believe they've done some things where it's you know the robotics with humans a, a suit a human's wearing or an arm that augments a human or different things and so i'm curious do you think that that piece the the synergy between humans and ai does that come first does that come after do they happen in harmony you know what do you think is going to happen in terms of if, like, let's say I'm a business owner in construction, you know, do you think first we're going to see suits that construction workers wear, or is it going to be faster to get to robots that are doing construction? What challenges or priorities even do you see on those different developments? I think we're probably going to see robot assistance first, because although exoskeletons would be extremely useful. One exoskeletons that can assist uh, veterans that have been disabled, people who are disabled like myself. Um, the the strange variable, and these are problems that even I enjoy tackling. It's it's a it's a problem. You 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 have all that space that your body is taking up um, is available to a robot. So you have to work with and then you also if you're wearing something wearables are different like i mean there are very few wearable technologies that have ever succeeded like you've got the watch you've got i mean sunglasses i mean i don't i mean you've got i mean i wouldn't consider a phone a wearable but like and they've tried the rings like it's wearable technology just is it's not it, it's really hard to adopt and it's it's seen struggles in a lot of places so I don't, I don't really see um, exoskeletons being used as be, having having mass adoption um, as easily as robotic assistance. Um, I know, I mean, if it's if it's like for military, that's kind of a different story. I think mm. uh, ex they already do have the Hulk. That's the HULC human human universal huge universal load ca carrier. Um, it, it is an exoskeleton that is able to enhance their strength several times over um it's incredible like they can carry like almost up to like a ton of weight on their back through the exoskeleton um a single person it's pretty impressive um but no i i think that and, and to your first point yeah it is to your to your first point um how should we be viewing ai and and robots i think i think we're very i think it's been very much a human instinct to look at things as tools obviously that's what has set us apart from other animals we have this ability to recognize something as a tool 
And I think it's more important for us. I think it's very important for us. Um, and I, I, a lot of my coworkers, uh, share this is that we need to anthropomorph, anthropomorph, what's the word anthropomorphize? Um, we need to respect, well, we need to start viewing AI more as a co-pilot, a peer, not necessarily a person. Like, I mean, we, we may struggle to have, you know, connection with robots, but they will start playing more of a co-pilot role in our lives. And I think that's a funny, I mean, I, I use that word because, um, Microsoft is actually changing. They're actually debranding Bing. Uh, they're going to rename it the copilot. Uh, this is a copilot suite. Their idea is that AI is going, everyone is going to be now using AI, the counterpart for like productivity. And I already, I'm already witnessing this because I have used Copilot, which is a, it is a tool, an AI powered tool for coding, um, in all the time. I have used Copilot. It's called, um, it, it basically finishes my code as I'm typing it. Sometimes it's wrong. Um, but I do find it rather interesting when, you know, and, and useful when I am typing something that's pretty like formulaic and it predicts the rest of that kind of formula. And I'm just like, all right, that, that was nice. I didn't have to type like that whole entire line of code. Um, and I've been using Copilot for almost two years now. Um, so I can already see a future in which everyone else is using a version of Copilot for their own document writing, their own Excel sheet writing. It, this is actually the, the original version of it was predictive text. So I think we're all probably starting to see updates in predictive text. I'm not sure how you feel about the Apple predictive text updates not a huge fan of it but you know i think that we are going to witness a bunch of predictive text updates so that's probably going to be the first phase so we'll on whatever platforms we're using it's going to try to finish your sentence for you whether that's annoying or correct it's it's something that i've experienced in programming for almost a decade um and i've i've worked with auto we call this autocomplete it's or code completion it will, it'll try to finish, it does make us more productive. And ultimately, if we learn to not be annoyed by it, and if it's doing a decent job, like it, it will make us more productive. Um, I think the next stage after autocomplete will actually be searching. I think that they need to, the next thing they need to improve is searches. So being able to reference documents and things that exist or personal information that you have and being able to reference that. So like that's going to enhance predictive text. That's going to enhance, enhance those things because it knows your documents. It's read through your stuff. It's, it knows what you're talking about. And eventually it's just going to slowly integrate into our personal lives. And it, it will become very, like, I don't know if, I think most of us probably won't see it as the traditional way we thought AI would be in our lives, which would be the Siri, you know, the Siri and the Alexa. This will basically just be like, the system, the predictive system that kind of just knows what you want to do and it will feel very natural. And I'm hoping that's the way it goes. That's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I, I get really excited about all of that. I think that it's a, a great point you make about this, this variability you get when you're, when you think about AI and robotics and working with humans, there are certain use cases that are super easy because there's so few different variables to account for. And the knowledge stuff, there's, you know, there's virtually not anything you have to account for almost at an individual level. Um, 
you, you just have to have a common language, I suppose, to speak. That's essentially the variable that you can communicate with it. Um, but then with wearable technology, the insane amount of different body types and uh, just the variety of how human bodies are shaped, function, that is such a massive amount of variability to account for. And what's really interesting is that, you know, if we do get to sort of robotic assistance uh, with AI first, I think that then accelerates and makes it easier to do the more personalized stuff. If you have to get to a point where AI is playing that more prominent role, now it's easier to solve the highly customized problem of, you know, you need a suit or you need something that augments your life in this way. Um, and we can tailor it to you because we have all these other tools supporting us to do that. Um, look more local instead of trying to mass produce something. Uh, exactly. That's, that's another thing that's really interesting to think about as robot gets more and more prevalent. Do we see some decentralization of production? You know, is, does it make sense? You know, automation historically has been used to centralize power and, and produce a scale, right? So the early robotics are like on car lines or in agriculture and and that revolutionized industries where most people worked in agriculture and then robotics put most of those people out of work and we moved into different jobs um and but it also centralized the agriculture industry instead of having a lot of little farms that are local you have these huge corporations doing it i'm very curious of like i think everybody would prefer to have homegrown organic vegetables or you know more locally sourced stuff as robotics makes it more to the uh, individual level, does that open up more opportunities where certain types of production can actually be decentralized? Do you, do you see any use cases for that, or is that something you thought about? I I would hope that there could be, but I know that I've at least from what I've seen, the general trend towards mass production in this particular type of economy. I'm speaking in, just in terms of uh, the United States centralization ends up in the hands of particular giants um manufacturing is a big problem just like compute power is and and the same struggles that are happening in ai in the software front will likely happen in the robotics front so and what i mean by that is that right now there is a there is a compute shortage like there are not enough GP, tpus they're actually tpus i mean we'll use a gpu i'm sure people will use it or companies would use a GPU if TPUs are not available. A TPU is just a, a, a GPU that's tailored specifically for AI, um, tensor processor unit. Um, there's just a, there's just a massive shortage. Everyone wants a TPU slash GPU. And frankly, there's just not enough. Uh, I mean, it's, it's getting cheaper, but, um, the only people now that are actually capable of making impactful new, AI models and training new AI models are people or sorry, companies with insane amounts of compute power. And so although it's like decentralized, I mean, until we can get models or train models that don't need teraflops on top of teraflops of just training and compute power, then the only people capable of training will only ever be companies like Microsoft, OpenAI, well, basically OpenAI is Microsoft and like google or amazon and so i ideally nah, yeah ideally i i do like i would i would not like that i would i would like some sort of decentralization that's why i think that maybe um 
if it were possible to have a superior model or a superior language model even that could function on a phone um, reliably, then it would, in essence, create a decentralized compute around the world that enables, and, and the, the, the extension to this is that, let's say, that LLM evolves over time into an actual, I don't know, sentient assistant. You now have decentralized sentience. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of important because if you have centralized sentience, mm. you know, it, you, it, the thing may, the, the entity may behave as a single unit rather than if it were decentralized, obviously decentralized units could easily merge, but maybe they would have a more decentralized and more, um, affected, uh, impression of human beings because they've had personal connection and attachment to those individuals um so that that's kind of where i was going with like i think mm. that so we are very centralized and i don't see unfortunately if we continue business the way we do i don't i don't see a situation in which we actually choose centralization decentralization over centralized um at, both in the physical and the software aspects yeah, it is a tough problem to solve, especially just because of the incentives behind it. But um, I, I like to believe, I, I like to envision a future where if if we have, say, a robotic assistant in the home, uh, that that robotic assistant can sew, is an expert sewer. I can just, I that model knows, or I can pay for the service to have it be an expert, uh, you know, seamstress. And if that's the case, we don't need child labor in some part of the world to make and, you know mass-produced clothes it's like i can uh, create i can buy some fabric i can create my clothes at home design them myself with the assistance of ai digitally and wear something totally unique to me my family etc and it's when it breaks it can get fixed it can get reused you know it's like i look at some of these mass you know production of clothes or mass production of agriculture if i can home grow all my own vegetables if I got a robot yeah. that can build a, a greenhouse and then can plant the garden and can get it all done, it's like I, I like to hope for a world where the um, as robotics in particular, the AI side, yeah. the robotics side of AI um, becomes more accessible or more prevalent, mm -hmm. that we can then get a more decentralized structure uh, because it it opens up so many doors to. Um, to a better life and to more freedom. And I think everyone has a, an appropriate fear of centralization. Uh, I think if anybody just thinks that math centralization is not dangerous, um, they probably haven't read it. Uh, so uh, I think we all probably are hoping that even though there is a lot of centralized, even now, and supposedly the most market economy in the world, there's still the reality is we still trended back towards centralization in the form of massive business and, and other things. And so um, it's a hard problem to solve, but I like to believe that um, there might be some opportunities in the future with robotics and with AI to do that. I agree. And I, I, I really like that you mentioned that robots could replace intensive labor jobs. Now, child labor, that's a, that's a totally different concept. I mean, I, I, I would hope that there wouldn't be other ways that those employers would find employment for those for those children that are also intensive labor but hopefully the first step would be creating an economy in which that type of labor isn't necessary 
Um, and so that kind of falls under the, the, the three D's, the dirty, dangerous, and dull kind of jobs. These are both, this, these are all dirty, dangerous, and dull jobs. Like children shouldn't be working <laughs> those kinds of jobs. And I would hope that robots would be able to take that over. Well, uh, it's been a super fun conversation, Tom. Uh, it's, uh, it's such an exciting area. I'm sure we could talk for hours, but, um, Love uh, anything that you want to plug, anything you're working on, uh, or that you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Well, I, I think that for anyone that is actually interested in, in being in this field, I think, as I mentioned before, divergent thinking is, is really important. So what I always, I actually do help a bunch of people, um, switch careers into tech, even though it sounds like, you know, a difficult time to do that. Um, I always say, you know, do think about what you've already done. And if what you've already done is not working, do what you haven't done. If you've been applying to jobs that are entry level, start applying to jobs that aren't entry level and asking for a little bit less than, you know, what they, what they offer, see what happens. Divergent thinking can really help. And I think that, um, I, I'm really glad to have been, um, asked to speak on, on this podcast because I, I agree that leverage is so important. Like you don't, it's more important than Riz. It's more important than natural born, where the weights are and, and trying to take advantage of those situations. It's all about timing sometimes. And so if you, if you can see some, if you can see an advantage and, and take that advantage, um, it will really help you get far. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Tom. Appreciate you. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to solve.cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at solved.cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.